0: all right good morning everyone welcome to our last session of foundations of the faith which means for those of you viewing online live or for those of you who have undergone this process with us or maybe years down the line you're checking out this series um, when you've completed this lesson you've completed all the lessons we've communicated to you the substance of the small catechism perhaps in more depth and detail than you ever wanted but nonetheless it is finished. It's accomplished. So today we will finish uh, the Lord's Supper. And if we have any extra time, I don't know that we will, but if we have any extra time, we'll just look at some of the other uh, sections in the small catechism, kind of the add-ons aside from <coughs> the six chief parts. And if not, that's fine. We'll just simply go through the Lord's Supper and call it a day. Let's begin with an invocation in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Now, for those of you who uh, brought a catechism, um, great. Uh, the 2017 catechism has us on page uh, 28. And for those of you who, who didn't or might have forgot, we do have um, some copies of the Book of Concord up here, Concordia of the Lutheran Confessions. Tho- that will have the small catechism in it. You'll just have to find the page. But anyway, feel free to sneak off to the side and grab one. You, you won't be on camera, I promise. Now, last week... And really the last two weeks, we've been entirely focused on this question of what is the Lord's Supper? What is it that we receive? With a very simple answer being the true body and blood of Christ. We took a look last week, especially tying in all kinds of Old Testament themes relating to the Lord's Supper, foreshadowing the Lord's Supper, so that we can see that the Lord's Supper and our knowledge of it isn't limited to the proof texts that we find um, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, but rather um, our Lord's Supper, the climax of the biblical faith prior to our Lord's return, has all is, is the fulfillment of all kinds of Old Testament scriptures and types. Then what we did was we jumped into uh, page 28, where the question, where is this written? And we had walked through the first half. So I'll simply read through that again. The holy evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and St. Paul write, Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. And of course, we took our time walking through uh, each of those words, maybe just to highlight a few. Of course, this is on uh, the night in which they celebrated The Passover in Hebrew reckoning, Thursday night and and Friday until sundown are all reckoned as one day. So the cross and the Lord's Supper are on the same day, reckoned in that biblical way. He takes bread, of course. He gives thanks. That's the word from which we get Eucharist when we call it the Eucharist. Um, We talked about the order here and how it's important to not infer a bunch of meaning and then biblically incorrect meaning. He breaks it. Um, again, prior to it being his body, he breaks it and gives it to his disciples and says, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. The word is there could easily be replaced with sign or symbol or anything that indicates a metaphor, it simply does not. We also talked about how a metaphor and a symbolic kind of eating and drinking here would be quite the anticlimax relative to all the literal eating and drinking that takes place throughout the entire Old Testament period. Um, maybe, maybe just a final comment here. He, he gives us his, um, his body to eat, which is given for you. That's on behalf of you. It's kind of hidden in the Greek language there. Um, and then this do in remembrance of me. I don't, I don't know why. I mean, this is grasping at straws in my opinion, but to say this do in remembrance of me somehow renders the whole thing symbolic or a mental exercise is like one of the worst arguments you could imagine. I mean, do what in in remembrance of him? All these actions, in specific, take bread, give thanks, break it, give it, say these words. So we can't simply assume that uh, because he says in remembrance of me, the entirety of the supper is some sort of intellectual exercise, which is, often used by non-sacramental Christians as this sort of like cover-all, gotcha, aha, it's just remembrance, you see, you don't actually do anything, it's, it's just you remembering Jesus, and it's kind of this object lesson, like, oh, the bread's kind of white, hmm, maybe that reminds me of, of uh, the flesh of Jesus, Ah, oh, the wine's kind of red, that might remind me of his blood, and the whole thing is transformed into this like, object lesson, which is ridiculous, and probably racist, because our, the bread we use is bleached white, I'm <laughs> joking around, but anyway, I mean, this, this is just kind of silly and stupid, obviously. Um, so, I mean, my way of always thinking about this and, and reminding people of this, for some reason, it resonates quite well with married people. You know, if, if my wife were to come to me and say, you know, at the end of the day, she's been anticipating that I would remember something the whole day long, at the end of the day, finally, she looks at me and says, did you remember our anniversary? Oh, yeah several dozen times i remembered it well what are we going to do nothing i sat on the couch and remembered it isn't that what remembrance means <laughs> oh i mean the idea that remembering something is just purely this intellectual spiritual exercise is completely false and phony any way it's analyzed uh, particularly here what does it mean then to take it in remembrance of him well duh i mean as as his body and blood are separated on the cross as his blood is poured out this is this is in, in biblical context, particularly in, in the Old Testament context, which at the time of the crucifixion are the scriptures, right? They are the scriptures. So in scriptural context, what is happening? The, the blood is being drained from the lamb. This is a sacrifice. The body and blood are being separated. The fact that Christ doesn't just take bread and say, here's me, okay, but rather takes bread and says, this is my body and takes the cup And says, this is my blood. The body and the blood are separated. That means that it's a sacrifice. And it's a sacrifice given for us to eat and to drink. Well, what sacrifice? The cross. So what does this do in remembrance of me mean? That we receive the body and blood of Christ as the once and for all sacrifice made on the cross, now brought present to us, given to us by God, for us Christians to eat and to drink. Why? For the forgiveness of our sins we're directly connected with the cross, which otherwise we would be disconnected from. Disconnected from. I mean, and, and okay, we all, I speak this way in my sermons. The church speaks this way in our writings. Uh, we sing this way in our hymns. You know, go to gar- dark Gethsemane, um, you know, and, and other such, such lyrics that locate us at the places of the passion or at the foot of the cross. I mean, it's all fine. I'm not going to critique that. But most of us aren't going to actually get on a plane and go over there. (laughs) So so where where does the cross come present to us? And that's specifically in the Lord's Supper. There's a sense in which everything that Jesus says about the cross is also true of the Lord's Supper. Where he is lifted up, he draws all men to himself. Is that the cross? Yes. Is that also his supper? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, that's the proper meaning of that, the elevation. The peace of the Lord be with you always. His peace is embodied in that. He's lifted up in order to give you peace and draw you to himself. Okay, well, maybe that's enough on remembrance. Before we move on to uh, the second part, specific to the cup, um, any thoughts or any questions, any clarifications I need to make um, based on that first part? Okay. Okay. Oh, and feel free to add anything, of course, too. Uh, these these words, these verses are uh, just inexhaustible, frankly. Okay, and then the next part. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper. Now, this is a detail that's that's very interesting, because at the original supper, and indeed for a time in the early church, or at least certain early church communities, certainly, or certain early church congregations, um, you can, see how, you can see how the Lord's Supper is actually part of a larger meal. So on the night when he's betrayed, he takes bread. And then look, in the same way also, he took the cup after supper. So there's this separation in the original event um, between the eating and drinking of it, or excuse me, the eating of his body and then the drinking of his blood. Um, that, that feast is sometimes called the Agape Feast or the Love Feast. It suddenly makes a lot of sense in understanding 1 Corinthians 11. Remember when all the Christians are gathering there and Paul's complaining that they're eating all the bread and drinking all the wine before everyone gets there, particularly the poor and working class people? And, I mean, what underlies that? Why are they, why are they glutting themselves on the bread and getting drunk on the wine? What do you have to believe, or rather, what do you have to not believe, <laughs> in order to do that? You have to not believe that it's his true body and blood. And thus, thus, his critique on this is, in not discerning the body, you become guilty of the body and the blood. You see, you become guilty of that which you assume is not there, and it actually is there. All right, but anyway, the point is, you can see this... You can see the Lord's Supper taking place in the context of a larger meal, sometimes called the agape meal, the love feast. Of course, the early church Christians um, were accused of, uh, oh gosh, what is it? Um, Orgies, orgies because of this title, the love feast. Um, But this quickly goes away and probably, probably, we don't know for sure, but probably because of the kinds of abuses that were happening in Corinth. And it simply gets truncated down to as we have it in the church today, as the church has had it for most of her life. The cup and the bread, no no meal surrounding it. All right, so in the same way also, what are we saying there? In the same sacramental way, the disciples themselves, and we all acknowledge as his disciples, that he's taking the cup in the same mode that he took the bread. These two things are connected. He takes it after supper and when they had given thanks, there again is the word thanks from which we get the word Eucharist. He gave it to them saying, now what surprises us as 20th or 21st century Lutherans? It should be he gave not it, but them to them. Because we have individual cups, right? And our Lord Jesus clearly used individual cups. Oh, he clearly didn't. No, he, so you can see in the grammar itself, he gave it singular to them, and in the different gospel accounts, it is called it, it is called the cup, may even be called his cup. Um, but that's but that. This is a rather profound point, by the way, and I don't mean to I don't mean to um, diminish. F- for the first uh, boy, I bet it was I bet it was like. 18 years or more of my life as a Lutheran, I commune out of nothing but individual cups. That's a valid communion. That's the true blood of Christ being received. So I'm not knocking this in any way. Um, But we should be interested in where this practice develops and why it develops, individual cups. Um, They're unknown to the church until the 20th century, about the 1960s. Yes, the 1960s, known as that, that great decade of Christian orthodoxy <coughs> where all of our <laughs> doctrine and practice got so much better. Um, they're, they're introduced into the church in America uh, by people who do not believe in the true body and blood of Christ and thus don't really care if it's one cup or his cup, that symbolism doesn't affect them, isn't interesting to them. It's just give me the wine and give me the bread so I can do my remembering of Jesus. Um, It of course comes up in the context of germs. You know, our Lord maker of the heaven and the earth who knows nothing of germs. Thank goodness we've rescued ourselves from his ignorance. Uh, but, it, but it comes, in a, again, in a, in a non-sacramental, concerned-about-germs context. It also coincides with an increasing, uh, something I lament in the sermon today, so I'm sorry to harp on it one more time, but an increasing sense of individuality sweeping through the church. Just me and my Jesus. Uh, me and my cup. Don't want any of your grubby cooties germs, <laughs> sins, whatever the case may be, get it all away from me. Um, which is really problematic. Now we're starting to get into really problematic practice. Now I'm not, again, like hear me rightly, someone can receive from the individual cup without indulging in any of these kinds of, of you know, abuses or sinful thoughts. But it lends itself to them. The practice itself lends itself to them and leads us potentially into temptation because we start to think about it this way. And we start to think of ourselves as not one body and one people. You know. So by way of analogy, I mean, if I, leave a, if I leave a glass on the table, especially if it's got something like Gatorade or Kool-Aid in it, if I don't guard that thing, my little kids will sneak up and just chug as much as they can. The only evidence that I had any at all is the red mustache painted across there. They have no sense of germs or cooties or anything else. They just think that we're family. Wow, okay. <laughs> might, that, might that be precisely uh, a, a lesson that we ought to consider as children of the Heavenly Father gathered together as one family that... Hey, we're all members of the same body. Your cooties are my cooties. Your germs are my germs. Your sins are my sins. Would that not make us a little more gracious, a little more compassionate? Your forgiveness is my forgiveness. Your Jesus is my Jesus. We don't have separate Jesus. It's not Jesus for Rodi and Jesus for you. It's one Jesus, it's one cup. It's his cup, it's his bread. You know, and the bread was the same way. We took the bread, unleavened typically, and we, we broke it and we, and we gave it. And It was all one loaf, and there's a a symbolism in that. We who are many are all gathered together in one. We partake of of the one and thus become one. Many grapes into one cup, and all of this imagery too. I mean, so much of this has been lost because we're afraid of germs. And I am going to be a little pointed. Sorry about this. Back in the pre-pandemic days, uh, what did we do? Went up to communion, very scared of the germs we were going to receive from the cup. We immediately went out and did what? <coughs> Shook the pastor's hand, which had shaken how many other hands? Mm. All of them, yeah. And and then and then what did we do? Well, we itched our eyes, we rubbed our nose, but most especially, we trotted immediately over to coffee. the snack table, <laughs> yeah, to the coffee table, and there we partook of we partook of food and drink. We all fingered through the cheeses and the cookies. <laughs> Um, then we ate them, and we weren't, we weren't even once, we weren't even once concerned about germs. And we come to the Lord's table, and it's like <sighs> <laughs> what, did, what did we do when we walked into the sanctuary? We do it still. When you stand up, where do your hands go? On the pew back. Then you go up to communion, what do you receive? Who was there before? The service before? Okay. Um, I, I mean, the, the The fear and loathing that we have that always draws itself specifically to the Lord's Supper, like there's something telling in that. And I've gotten a beat on this as a pastor. When the pandemic came up, what was the first thing that everybody wanted to cancel? Communion, of course. I mean, but particularly, not just communion, but particularly the Lord's cup. Yeah, particularly that's in view. Now, why? Also completely logically inconsistent on our part, I, in the back, in, back in the good old days before COVID, it still is true to some extent, although we've tried to space the cups out. But you go to reach for your individual cup, and you inevitably do what? Touch the rim of the other cups. Also, the rim of the cup is touching your fingers, which, as we've discussed, have touched everything else, and then you're putting that to your mouth. But that's definitely, definitely more sanitary than the common cup that nobody touches. Nobody touches the rim. A purificator, a different spot of the purificator, is the only thing that touches the rim. Along with the alcohol that cleanses it, along with the noble metal that is antimicrobial. But, my germs, you know, my individuality. Uh, so, I give you these things in a, in a pointed way um, to challenge you to think a little more logically, to think a little more consistently, and to recognize the kinds of irrational fears that we don't tie to anything else. But we tie to the cup. And just let that, let that sink in. Like, is that, Do we think that that's the Holy Spirit impelling that or the unholy spirit? Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. I rest my case. Okay. So he took the cup after supper. Now, we don't have time to trace this, but this is huge and rich theology that goes all the way back through the scriptures. The cup is... Um, so profound in and it of itself. Because this is the night he's betrayed. No sooner than he takes the cup and gives it to them. Okay? They go out singing psalms into the Garden of Gethsemane. And what does he pray to the Father? Take this cup, again singular, from me. Now what cup is that? If you trace it through the scriptures, what is the cup that he's asking to be removed from him? Yeah, it is the cup of God's wrath that he will make the nations to drink. What is the symbolism? Who, whose cup is that? Is that Jesus' cup to drink? That's our cup. And do you see on that night how this ties together? So he takes his cup and gives it, and then he takes our cup. There's a cup swap going on, and you utterly miss that if you've got these like, individual cups going on in your mind, in your, in your biblical way of perceiving, because, because there's a swap of two cups. He takes and drinks the cup of God's wrath for us, and he gives us the cup of God's blessing, forgiveness, life, and salvation. Okay, so um, he took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament or covenant, if frankly doesn't matter, dia theke is the Greek, in my blood. Now, what was the old covenant we talked about last week it's at Sinai that's the old covenant and the old covenant was not in the blood of Jesus it was not in the blood of Moses it was in the blood of bulls and the blood sprinkled the people so Jesus is doing two things here this is the new covenant okay, as opposed to the old that's the first thing he's doing and it's not in the blood of bulls it is in my blood those are the two things Jesus is doing here. So this is the New Covenant or New Testament in my blood. As I mentioned before, this is the only place, if you scan your, your Bible, for all the red letters, all the things that Jesus ever says, where, where Jesus tells us what the New Testament is. It's not the books at the end. It's not even in Je- from Jesus' lips. It's not even the cross as such. It's this cup that communicates and gives the blessings of the sacrifice of the cross to us. <coughs> Okay, drink of it, all of you, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you, again, that's kind of the language of on behalf of you, for the forgiveness of sins. And that language specifically comes from Matthew 26, but here from Jesus' own lips, it gives the forgiveness of sins. Again, because think of how it's tied to the cross. The forgiveness won on the cross is distributed to us in the cup. Then again he says this do. What do? All of the above. As often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Um, There is is one other place that's worth pointing out uh, in the Old Testament while we're thinking in the terms of covenant. And if you have a Bible with you, which if you have your phone with you, you have a Bible with you, right? (laughs) So uh, Jeremiah 31 Is where we want to go we want to look at this this off oft misunderstood oft misinterpreted um, discussion in jeremiah of the new covenant and we want to connect that or see at least how that's connected to the lord's supper so jeremiah 31 and we'll start it's a short section we'll start at verse 31 and what the heading in the ESV Lutheran Study Bible will show you is the New Covenant. This is talking about the New Covenant. Okay. Uh, chap- yeah, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 is where we'll start. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. See how this is the Sinaitic covenant? Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. All right. so what has happened in the breaking of the covenant? Though I was their husband, the covenant has been broken. There is a divorce. Now, what is the new covenant going to be? It's going to be a reversal of that divorce. It's going to be a kind of marriage. And that, too, is why Christ gives us his body and blood to eat and to drink, so that we become one flesh with him, so that his life is our life. There is a union between Christ and his bride, the church. There's a marital analogy, which is often why we call it a foretaste of the feast which is to come. So we get that language and that imagery of the Lord's Supper as a marriage. I mean, not to be too graphic about it, but analogous to the two becoming one flesh in common marriage um, is the sacrament of the altar. And if we're looking for a, a place at which the scriptures would teach that, we might well look here, we might well look at Song of Songs as well. Now, moving on to verse 33... But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. What does he literally put within us? His body and blood himself. He is the word, the Torah, the law made flesh. So now we see the fullness of what that means and how it's distinguished from the Old Testament saints who had the Holy Spirit and who were regenerate and in that sense had the law written on their hearts. We see that something new is indeed being proclaimed and given. Namely, that Christ himself, the law incarnate, will be given unto us so that his law will be within us. The word made flesh will be within us. And I will write it on their hearts. That is, Christ through his body and blood is written onto our hearts. He becomes one with us. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest declares the lord for i will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sins no more and isn't that precisely how our lord's words regarding the new covenant end this is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins jeremiah is talking about the lord's supper Now, what is this no longer teaches, neighbor? You can understand this, and people understand this in two different ways. Either as referring to the Lord's Supper as a foretaste of that feast to come when we're all in heaven, there'll be no pastors. Alas, I'll have to find a different job. Or thanks be to God. I'm looking into fishing or farming, just to let you know. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So it can mean that, or it can simply mean kind of a poetic hyperbolic and then how do you understand that um you understand it in precisely this way even though we do have human teachers and human guides you are being brought into immediate communion with the lord jesus himself and so he himself is teaching you and that would be the sense in which this applies to the lord's supper if you kind of want to take that read on it i think either one you're orthodox there's enough ambiguity we can take either one and just enjoy them both um No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. How is it that we know? And, And remember that biblical language of know and how it sometimes is freighted with marital content? Okay. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. That's the new covenant. And now you can see how Jesus' words tie in beautifully to that. The newness of it is receiving Jesus himself sacramentally. It's not in the regeneration. It's not that the Holy Spirit wasn't given in the Old Testament and now He's given in the New, or all these other groping, searching theories we come up with, which are all nonsense, um, simply because we don't understand how the prophecies of the Old Testament connect directly with the Lord's Supper. All right. Now, that. Again, this comes to us in an Old Testament context, and then as I, as I hinted at last week, it comes to us in a New Testament context as well. The New Testament documents can be read, and really especially I think Matthew should be read this way, although they all kind of function catechetically. Okay? The point and the, of the... If you, think of, if you think of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all climax with the Lord's Supper, the Passion, and Resurrection. Okay, they all climax there. So you can see then, at least in part, these documents are meant to prepare us as disciples to know and understand what the Lord's Supper, what the Crucifixion and Resurrection are about. Okay. Well, how so? In what ways do we have these hints and allusions, these, this catechesis leading us to the Lord's Supper? As I mentioned last week, we've got just kind of very, uh, well, I don't know how subtle they are, but of course, Jesus is born into Bethlehem, which is the house of bread, and he will say, I am the true bread that comes down from heaven, he will connect that directly with eating his flesh and drinking his blood in John 6. Of course, he's laid into a feeding trough, which again, as I said, the only thing more subtle, I think, is laying him on a dinner plate, which they didn't do, but... um, so there's hints and allusions. His very first miracle is, as, we, as someone said last week, turning water into wine. And if you sort of see this as, as the first public miracle, or sort of the first miracle, close to the last miracle, just depending on how you're thinking about miracles. But, but think of the whole arc of Jesus' ministry. He turns water into wine, and then the night before the cross, he turns wine into wine and so there's this sort of inclusio going on there all right um, what else does he do he's he is known he's notorious for eating and drinking with sinners that's the thing that the Pharisees always bring up he has table fellowship with sinners and of course he still does to this day at the Lord's Supper without the Lord's Supper there'd be no table or no table fellowship with sinners um, there's this business it's a it's a rather subtle illusion but the Pharisees critique, critique our Lord for allowing his disciples to eat on the Sabbath. Remember, they're going through and they're taking the grain from the fields. But more interesting is our Lord's answer, where he, he answers more than their critique. And he says that he is Lord of the Sabbath, and he compares his provision of bread for his disciples as David giving the showbread of the Old Testament, the bread of presents, uh, to his men. And so, just as we talked about the bread of presence being an allusion to the Lord's Supper, the bread of Jesus' presence, we see subtle allusions in building that the Lord is effectively saying, hey, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, I can do whatever I want, I can give to my disciples whatever I want. Including the bread of presence. Okay? So that's the point of that. Of course we see Jesus feeding the 4,000 and feeding the 5,000. And um, Climactically, of course, you have, the, you have the, Lord, the institution of the Lord's Supper, but then climactically in Luke's Gospel, after Jesus is risen from the dead, he opens, remember on the road to Emmaus? And he, he opens the disciples' minds so they can understand the Scriptures, the Old Testament, and how it's all about him. Okay? And then he reveals himself to them, how? Specifically in the breaking of the bread. And so this becomes a catechetical way in which we see that the Lord Jesus, risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, continues to reveal himself to his disciples, that is to us, in the breaking of the bread. So communion is a, is a uh, holy apocalypse, a, a holy unveiling or revealing, where Jesus reveals unto us uh, more and more of himself, present tense. This is kind of a different take on, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Yeah, I just don't mistake him as my imaginary friend. My personal relationship with Jesus is based specifically on his presence in the Lord's Supper and his meeting me there as he has said and promised and as he reveals himself to me there uh, in word and sacrament. So yes, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. It's just not like I, I picture him, you know, following me to the beach and agreeing with everything I, uh, I think. You know. Okay. <coughs> what might we what might we hone in on? We might hone in on these two things because one of the biggest objections to the Lord's Supper is, um, of course, w- this this argument of like, well, the bread the bread you know can't turn into His body, the wine can't turn into His blood, and of course you've got you've got exactly the uh, miracle at Cana that shows that He can do whatever He wants with whatever He wants. He's God and that's kind of the point. And then you've got this other objection of like, well, how can Christ take his body and blood, which are finite, and distribute them infinitely throughout? And you've got the feeding of the 5,000 that shows that God, Christ is God, and he can do whatever he wants, and he can multiply things infinitely or effectively infinitely. And so why do you, so look, all these things are like, if he can do this, then why do you doubt him in the supper? You know, that's how all these things are. They're all just built so as we go along, it's like, you don't doubt this. You don't doubt this. You don't doubt this. You don't doubt this. Now comes the climax. Don't doubt it, right? Okay, so what is the Lord's Supper very plainly? The true body and blood of Christ. Why do we receive it? For the forgiveness of our sins. And that's where we shift into the second half of the Catechism now. Page 29, the top. What is the benefit of this eating and drinking? These words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins show us that in the sacrament forgiveness of sins, life and salvation are given us through these words. For where there is forgiveness of sins, there is also life and salvation. Okay, so again it is, oh well, I should point this out. Because in keeping uh, with the theme of my sermon today, which, which is just against individualism, Um, given and shed for you is a plural. There is no such thing in the Bible as given and shed for you, singular. Given and shed for you, plural. This, by the way, too, is why we don't like commune ourselves or have private communion, (laughs) that kind of thing. I mean, a pastor doesn't even do that because it belongs to all of us and the you is plural. Okay? Um Given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins shows us that in the sacrament, forgiveness of sins. Yeah, and if there's forgiveness of sins, you take away death, thus there's life. If you take away sin and death, you take away damnation, thus there's salvation. So forgiveness of sin, life, and salvation are all given us. And then Luther's going to put the emphasis on the words which require faith to believe. So faith is not hereby excluded. For where there is forgiveness of sins, there's also life and salvation. Yes, please. Are we running a microphone today or no? All right. One second. Thank you. Sorry to make you come all the way up here, right up here, to the front.
1: So, uh, in other churches, the non-Lutheran churches, uh, they don't believe that the blood and the bread and blood are true body and. I mean the bread and the wine are not true body and blood but they do pronounce the the word of institution right that's what he said
0: Yeah yeah, yeah okay and
1: because the word is pronounced mm. how, uh, exactly how Jesus said so is that a valid uh, mm, mm.
0: Good question, good question. So many of you have experiences in evangelical congregations or non-denominational congregations, non-sacramental congregations, where the pastor will actually change the words. Um, Again, I was at a very large megachurch here in Southern California, (laughs) saddleback, and uh, the pastor there um, said, uh, he he has the last name of Warren, and he said in in the words of Institution Christ, took the bread and said, this symbolizes my body. He took the cup and said, this symbolizes my blood. Now, I mean, two things there. A, it's an abomination. B, B, it's not. I love it, because he's being dead honest with what they believe. Praise God, because at least if you're honest, then other people can like fetch out, wait a minute, my Bible says is, and you said symbolize. Is and symbolize are two different things. Right? I mean, symbolize is kind of like nonsensical, but symbolize actually means it's not. If, if it is, then it doesn't symbolize. If it symbolizes, then it's not. You, do you see? Like, it's really plain. So, like, if I said, like, to Juliana, you know, like, hey, you're just, like, you symbolize my wife. <laughs> she might not know how to take that, but she wouldn't like it one bit. <laughs> and then if I, if I let her through this whole, like, well, you know, is means is, but symbolize means is not then I'd get slapped, probably. I deserve to anyway. Um, Because by saying this symbolizes, you're actually saying it's not. So this symbolizes my body is the same as saying this is not my body. Now consider the hubris here. Consider the hubris. Our Lord in his last will and testament says this is, and and you're going to stand up and say, this isn't. Remember, too, I think, I think this is worth just having in your mind. I don't want to do a long treatment of this, but remember how the Lord's Supper traces all the way back to the, to, the, um, to the tree in the garden and what was hanging from the tree and looks good for fruit. And God says, even though it looks good, there's death in there. Don't eat it. What was the serpent there doing? What was this question? Did God really say? So, so guess what? If we've, got a, if we've got a new tree, namely the cross... And the fruit that hangs from it, Christ's body and blood. And God says, hey, even though it looks like death and unpleasant to the eye, unpleasant for food, eat it, there's life in it. Where do we think we're going to have the the serpent? He's going to be coiled right up around that tree and he's going to be saying, did God really say? Mm -hmm. Right? That is the true origin for symbolizes versus versus is. Okay, um, so... So I didn't quite answer your question though yet. Did you have? Did you? I want to be respectful. Did you have something on the sub point, or are you directing me back to the main point?
1: No. Well, I grew up in a Methodist church, uh-huh. and, and they did communion four times a year. But they actually read the actual words of institution, not symbolized. They said yeah.
0: the words. So a similar question: yeah. If it, you know, what does that do to the to the wine and the bread? Right. 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 So so here here is um, if you go back. Go back on page 28 to the very first question and answer in the Catechism. What is the sacrament of the altar? It is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine, instituted by Christ himself for us Christians to eat and to drink. Instituted by Christ himself. That's the key word in determining this. Okay. In the scriptures, the words of institution come to us in Greek do we have to say the words of institution in greek in order to have a valid supper no so a translation will do what we've just established is it's not the sound of the words it's the meaning of the word you see okay, it's the meaning of the word now if a pastor and a congregation have said to you that this is my body means this symbolizes my body. It's not the sound of the words that matter, it's the meaning of the words that matter. Okay? So for this reason, just simply having the words of institution there don't magically affect the presence of Christ's body and blood because it's not in accord with his institution. They've changed the meaning of the words. Properly speaking, the words aren't there. Just certain sounds are there, the meaning has been gutted. Um, A very similar thing happens, um, for example, in Mormon baptism, where they will, from time to time, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Is that a valid Christian baptism? The entire church on earth says, no. Why? They use the right words. They've gutted the words of their meaning, and what they mean by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is entirely different than what we Christians mean as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So again, it's not the sound of the words that matters, it's the meaning. Now, what what does this all mean just existentially, just as we're living our lives um, as Christians in, in a fallen, broken world? If you have a question as to what's there, go up and ask the pastor, am I receiving the true body and blood of Christ in my mouth for the forgiveness of my sins? If the pastor tells you, no, it's just symbolic, believe him. If anyone knows, he does. Believe him. Okay, and then of course you don't want to do any of that anyway. It's just a thought experiment. But but if someone comes to me, and this is is something I objectively say to people, is this is the true body and blood of Christ that you're going to receive in your mouth whether you believe it or not. And if you don't believe it, you're subject to the judgment of what Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 11. If you do believe it, well, then God be praised. It's for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Yes, please. It kind
1: of goes back to what you've been saying and what we've been studying uh, on the me, because uh, Bob and I were witnessing to Mormons once, and this Mormon said to me, who was leader in the church, he said, "You, God." created all our physical laws. Now, this is a quote. God created our physical laws, and we're bound by them, and so is he. And and that's how they treat everything. Everything's yeah. kind of a, like God's just the guy that, you know, he's bound by the things we're bound by. And I said, do you hear what you're saying? Yeah. He could create it, but he can't go outside of it.
0: Yeah, I know. You know, and know.
1: it was because... It's me. It's always me.
0: Yeah, yeah. And a lot of this is just monkey business. Yeah, it just I all devolves into c- could God create a rock bigger than he could move kind of nonsense yeah. that you think of when you're like eight, you know. Um, <laughs> instead, of, instead of just believing and receiving his words, having our reason be subject to. Okay, so the blessing and benefit. Okay, yeah, so the long and the short is, unless the pastor will tell you it's the true body and blood of Christ that you're receiving in your mouth, then just take him at his word that it's not there. Yeah, simple enough, simple enough. Okay, and then, so the blessing and benefit is for the forgiveness of sins. Now, the next question in the Catechism, how can bodily eating and drinking do such great things? Certainly not just eating and drinking do these things, but the words written here, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. These words, along with the bodily eating and drinking, are the main thing in the sacrament. Whoever believes these words has exactly what they say, forgiveness of sins. This is exactly parallel to the baptismal theology. Um, You know, yeah, the water needs to be poured over you. You need to be washed. You need to be baptized. But the true power, properly speaking, is in the word of God. The word and institution of God. And so, so the same is true here. You do, in fact, need to have the bodily eating and drinking of the bread that is his body, the wine that is his blood. But the main thing for faith to grasp hold of is the word of Christ that tells us what this is and why he's giving it to us, namely the forgiveness of sins. Okay, and then last but not least, who receives this sacrament worthily? Remember Luther's 16th century context. Um, very often it was taught that one would fast uh, before receiving the sacrament. All right. um, so thus, fasting and bodily preparation are certainly fine outward training. I mean, other bodily preparations would be like fasting, prayer, maybe even giving of alms. Um, in our context, it would be like showering, not wearing a bikini to the communion rail. Like these would be bodily preparations. Okay? So fasting and bodily preparation are certainly fine outward training. That is, they're good and commendable and great. Okay? But that doesn't constitute worthiness. That person is truly worthy and well-prepared who has faith in these words, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. But anyone who does not believe these words or doubts them is unworthy and unprepared. For the words for you require all hearts to believe. Again, notice the plurals there. Okay, so worthy sacrament, there's kind of a paradox. If you think yourself an unworthy sinner, that's precisely what makes you worthy. (laughs) of Receiving the body and blood for the forgiveness of your sins. You know, if you don't think yourself a, a, a sinner, then you don't want what Jesus has, which is Forgiveness, yeah. And so this too then is why, you know, if there's someone who's in impenitent, manifest impenitent sin, we don't commune because they don't want forgiveness of sins. That's what this meal is. It's forgiveness of sins, right? Yes, sir. So kind of going back to the uh, previous questions,
1: but also related to this. uh, In my hometown, there was a LCMS congregation, but the pastor suddenly not even just converted to like another denomination, but I think he converted to like either Hinduism or some Eastern religion mm. all of a sudden. Mm. What would the validity of the Lord's Supper be that he had been giving yeah. for as long as he had been thinking about this and suddenly not even believing in Christianity? Anywhere? Yeah,
0: great question. Great question. So, um, yeah, once the, the cat's out of the satchel there, once the... Uh, the demon's out in the open. Um, what do you make of the sacraments that went before? This was a question that the early church addressed um, and answered, and we've all held to this answer ever since, that the validity of the sacraments is based on uh, not the pastor's individual opinion, but the word of God as objectively understood by that church, by that congregation. Right. So, 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 like, so this is the thing. Here's the thought experiment. Okay, if I suddenly got infested by a demon and became a Hindu but didn't want to tell anyone <laughs> okay, um, and I was, I was up doing the sacrament of the altar but in my head I'm like ha ha ha, I don't believe this is so it isn't. Okay, the Lord's not going to elect my stupidity to affect your sacrament and his presence for you. Okay, so the principle there is that The words and the words as understood by the congregation, they can't be subverted by the unbelief of this individual or that individual, even if that individual happens to be the pastor, right? So in the case of someone who comes out later as a heretic or says, I was never a Christian in the first place, I just conned you all, the baptism is still valid because it's on the basis of the word. It's Christ doing it through the hands of someone who is completely lost. The Lord's Supper is valid because it's Christ doing it through the hands of someone who is completely lost. So we put our yeah we put our faith.
1: And so the difference, yeah. and so the difference there between that uh, LCMS congregation with the heretic pastor and the Methodist or non-denominational congregation is that it's the congregational belief and that uh, kind of as in the sermon, this uh, group family uh, part of the Lord's Supper.
0: Yeah, it can be quite a bit nuanced, and it's not exactly this mathematical principle. But generally speaking, what the church would do was try to say, was this in accord with the institution? I mean, this is bigger than the the individual at this point. And and we don't want to play games of like, well, what about the pastor? Well, what about 49% of the congregation? What about 59%? I mean, in that case, it would just be like, well, I'm not sure. And the church would just say, we're not sure. Okay. but, suffice it to say, if it's just one individual, and that individual happens to be the pastor, the entire church is going to recognize the validity of those sacraments. That, and this is universal, by the way. I mean, it's true in not just Lutheranism. This is, just isn't how Lutherans look at it. It's how Roman Catholic Orthodox, basically all sacramental Christians, sort of view it this way. Um, these, this question was answered early on in the church because this lo and behold happened and people were doubting the validity of the sacraments and some were saying well you got to be baptized again you never communed in the first place and the church said no it's the lord who's doing these things it's according to the institution the unbelief of one man even if he's the pastor can't overturn that right so generally the theological principle is just is it in accord with the institution of christ and then that's applied to the circumstance yeah good question Okay, we've got we've got a well we've got a couple more hands, but I don't know that we have time for a couple more hands. Um, let me uh, let me. If you need to take off, we're at we're at quarter after right now. If you absolutely need to take off, please do. Otherwise, I'll go ahead and entertain these two questions. We'll see if I can answer quickly, and then we'll uh, we'll call it a day.
1: Yes, My please. question was back to Estelle's question: the meaning. You said it has to the it's the meaning behind what they're saying. Mm-hmm. So they can say the words, but if the meaning isn't there, then it's not valid.
0: Yeah, but the meaning isn't contained in that pastor's head, you know, it's part of the larger institution okay. of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can play similar thought experience. What if a perfect Orthodox Christian omits one of the wor- parts of the words of institution? Most pastors would say, to be sure, you need to be, he needs to say, this is the body and blood of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And an elder or someone should say, ah oh, pastor, you blew a major part. You should, you know, go <laughs> consecrate, okay? Um, but, but what if you just forget and do this in remembrance of me? Is it a valid sacrament or not? You know, well, not all the words were, okay, but we're not counting words. Is it in accord to the, of the meaning and institution of Christ? It, I mean, a sort of parallel to this would be, is it done in good faith, you know, despite despite what one individual, whether he's the pastor or someone else, might think, is the community gathered in good faith in the acknowledgement that this is the sacrament. Um, and what we're really talking about from our very human perspective is just degrees of certainty. And we can be absolutely certain that Christ is working despite the unbelief of the pastor. the other The other was over here, and um, the other was over, uh, yes, right here. and then and then we'll we'll call it a day.
1: And just quickly, and maybe the answer you gave on the last question might be answered answer to this question. But when when you as a pastor are blessing the body and the blood, mm-hmm. you show the sign of the cross. Mm-hmm. And even that symbol is written and shown in the bulletin. Mm-hmm. What do you think if a pastor intentionally does not do that? He does not bless it in the way that, you know, he shows the sign of the cross over the body and the blood. Is that, does that water down? You know, in any way, or is that just a peculiar habit that the pastor you think can be overlooked?
0: No, not necessarily. So, in, in Lutheran theology and in the larger Western tradition of the church, in the East it's just less specific, uh, but in the West it's, it becomes tied very heavily to the Word and to the Word affecting the presence of Christ's body and blood. That's baseline. Then, a certain accoutrements have been added to that, such as the visual accoutrement of making the sign of the cross at the phrase, this is my body, or this is my blood. Okay? Um, there were um, acoustic accoutrements, like the ringing of a bell at that moment too. All that's trying to symbolize is, hey, this which was recognized by all of us as simply common bread and common wine, has now by virtue of the word of Christ Become bread that is his body, wine that is his blood. And it just draws attention to what Christ has done in our midst that we all might receive it to our benefit. So that's where that comes from. The omission doesn't affect or change it. Um, we have no indication that Jesus himself did this. So we doubt very highly that there were any organs playing bells when uh, you know, and he did it in the upper room. Yeah, but good question. Good question. All right. Thank you so much for your time. The Lord be with you.